0: Let's open our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 9 We'll be looking at the fifth and sixth trumpets tonight, the trumpet judgments. Uh, last week we were in chapter 8 where there was uh, uh, the start of the first half of the tribulation with a half hour of silence and as the anticipation built then the uh, first four trumpets were sounded The first angel sounded the trumpet in chapter 8, and there was hail and fire mingled with blood that fell on the earth. A third of all the vegetation of the earth died. In uh, the second angel, when he sounded, a great burning mountain was cast into the sea, and a third of the sea turned to blood, and a third of the living animals in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third trumpet sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, as it were, a lamp and many people said that was, could possibly be a comet, but uh, the effects of that uh, judgment, um, a third of the fresh waters became wormwood, and many men died because of that uh, poison, the bitter waters. The fourth angel sounded, with uh, the fourth trumpet, and the, the, a third of the sun, moon, and stars were smitten, did not give their light, and uh, that was the, um, the, the fourth trumpet that we heard. Now we come to the fifth and sixth trumpets. Um, There is, there are three woes that were pronounced at the end of chapter eight. The first woe is the fifth trumpet. The second woe is the sixth trumpet. So five months of torment in the first woe. Two hundred million demons or two hundred million soldiers destroy a third of the population of the earth. And then the third woe is the seventh trumpet that announces the seventh bowl. Bowl, the seven bowls of wrath or vials of wrath. Uh, that, those bowls of wrath will be poured out in the second half of the tribulation period. So we're in Revelation chapter 9 and we're going to start right in by hearing the, the fifth trumpet. An army, of, uh, uh, an army of demons from the bottomless pit will be released in these verses nine, uh, verses 1 through 12. Let's read verses 1 and 2. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and it was, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Now, unlike the star that uh, fell from heaven in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, This star is a person. Notice it says, uh, to him was given the key. Uh, This star was uh, an an angel. Most Bible students identify this star as Satan himself. I think it was um, Newell, who was the only one in his commentary, that said this was a fallen angel. But everybody else uh, seems to recognize this as Satan. The language sounds a lot like what's described in other passages that speak of Satan. In Job chapter 38 and verse 7, God was asking Job where he was at creation. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so here God is calling uh, the morning stars, referring to the angels as the morning stars. So John writes... In verse 1, I saw a star fall from heaven. So the language is similar to Satan already. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. We read this prophetic uh, statement, and yet it it was something that took place earlier. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, and we have the five I wills of Satan's uh, boasting. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet, thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And so there, the, um, the terminology, again, a lot like Satan's fall. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, uh, there is a prophecy against the king of Tyre, and uh, he would be brought down to the pit where he would die in verse 8. A few verses later, the imagery shifts to Satan's fall. It's obvious that he's talking about Satan here in verses 13 through 15. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering the sardis, topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Jesus referred to the pride of Satan when the 70 um, disciples returned and they were thrilled that the demons uh, were subject to them. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And so we have in this section uh, terminology that uh, Sounds a lot like Satan, and that's what most identify this angel as. It's interesting here. It's to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, Dr. Custer writes Here, God gives Satan limited authority, the key to the bottomless pit, the pit of the abyss, which is clearly a prison for evil spirits. We have other references to this pit with no bottom. In Revelation chapter 11, Verses 7 and 8, a beast will come out of that bottomless pit and make war against the two witnesses. In chapter 20 of Revelation, verses 1 through 3, Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit, where he'll be kept for a thousand years, the, the period of time that we know as the millennium. Let's think of the vocabulary here Here, uh, as far as a bottomless pit goes. I, as a young person, I would hear this, this reference, and I would say, what, what does that look like? It goes forever and ever. How does that work? Well, the word pit is used in Scripture for a well, a cistern, a hole in the ground. Uh, it's the word used in John chapter 4, verse 11, where the woman of Samaria said to Jesus, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. The word for well there is the same here as pit. Now the word bottomless is the one that uh, needs uh, some uh, definition. The the Greek word is abousos, and we get our word abyss from that. It's a large hole, enough to hold a third of the angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. We know that from a passage in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, where the fourth of, a third of the stars are, are cast down uh, with Satan. I heard a Bible teacher propose one time that the bottomless pit is a hole in the earth that goes from one side of the earth to the other, and hence it would have no bottom to it. Now, the literal, literal meaning of the words here, I think, is best for us to understand, a pit of the abyss. There are four words uh, that are used to describe hell in the Bible. The word Hades is a New Testament word uh, that's translated hell. Revelation 20, 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Death, thanatos, that is all the dead. And then hell, which is Hades here, cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Jesus said in Matthew 25 and verse 41 that he would, he would separate the sheep from the goats and he would say, depart from me, ye cursed, or ye wicked, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Hades is used there, or the, ever, the, the lake of fire is that, that same lake that we saw, death and hell are cast into it, and so that lake of fire is something that God prepared not for mankind but for Satan and his angels. So we have that word Hades, we also have the word Gehenna, Gehenna is a descriptive word that Jesus used, the valley of Hinnom is south of Jerusalem and it was used in the past for a garbage dump, fires would continually burn to consume the garbage there. In 2 Chronicles 28 verse 3, Ahaz is burning things there and it says moreover he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And burnt his children in the fire after the admonitions of the heathen, or after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So Jesus used that word, Gehenna, as an illustration of what hell would be like, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Literally, hell is, is the garbage dump of the entire universe. And then we have the word in the Old Testament, Sheol or sheol. Sheol is the, is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament word Hades. It means hell or the grave, the place of the dead. There's one other word that's used in the New Testament. It's only used once, and that's in 2 Peter 2.4, and it's the word Tartarus. It's a place where these evil angels, the, the demons, are kept. Second 2 Peter 2.4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. And that's our word, Tartarus. And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Well, that's verse 1. We'll move quickly now. <laughs> verse 2. Uh, Satan was given this key. And so he opens the pit. And as he does, smoke arises from this pit. It was as the smoke of a great furnace. It's interesting that that's the same description that's given for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 28. The smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Well, as this pit is opened and this smoke arises, it says it darkened the sun and the air. In verses 3 through 11, out of that pit come forth locusts. And they have the power of scorpions. Look at the description in verse 3, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, when you compare locusts and scorpions, locusts have six legs, they're, they're actually insects. They're known for destroying vegetation, we have the plagues of Egypt, the locusts that came across the, the land. And then scorpions have eight legs, so they're arachnids. They're known for their stinging venom. Here, these locusts are not going after plants and vegetation like most locusts do, but they're attacking people. We read about their power in verses 4 and 5. And their power is limited, but they still have some abilities. Let's look at the limitations, what they're not allowed to do and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth neither any green thing neither any tree but only those men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads and to them it was given that they should not kill them we've talked before about these who were sealed in in the last chapter and those are specifically the 144,000, 12,000 of every tribe of Israel. So they are, they are Jews. Now a lot of people are asking the question, what about Gentiles that are saved during the tribulation period? Warren Wiersbe says in this spot, it is likely that all who have trusted the Lord will be sealed in some special way and protected from this torment. We don't know that for sure, but that's... What he says, and so it gives some kind of an answer, but the text uh, specifically keeps it to those 144,000 Israelites. So limitations. They're not allowed to kill those who have been sealed by God. Their abilities, what they were allowed to do. Well, the fact that they were limited to do only certain things tells us that God Kept them from doing some things and allowed them to do others. The words in verse 5 at the very beginning. To them it was given. God is still in control of everything. He always has been. He always will be. He's the one who allows them to destroy. Nothing is outside of God's control. He was the one who gave Satan the key to this pit. And he is allowing these locusts to hurt men, but not to kill them. They could hurt them, those that were sealed, uh, but they could not kill them. It says in verse 5, at the second half of verse 5, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. So apparently this this sting that these demons... uh, administer to people, uh, are, keep them in pain for, for five months. The response of men to that judgment, verse 6, In those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Here, probably because of the potency of this venomous sting, the pain makes them want to die. But it is not a deadly sting. They will continue to survive. We have further description, verses 7 through 10, about these locusts. The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions. And there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Now again, remember, John is describing things that he's seeing in this vision, but he's describing them in terminology that's familiar to him, his own experiences. Who are these locusts? Dr. Custer says that they're demonic creatures prepared for this time to afflict mankind. How do they look? Well, they look like horses prepared for battle. They're called locusts because they're sweeping across the world like a great plague. But they're compared to the size and strength of battle horses. It says that they had as it were crowns of gold on their heads. The crown is a sign of strength, a sign of authority, a sign of victory. And so these demons appear to have control of everything. They appear to be unstoppable. They have faces as the faces of men, but they're not men. Their hair is the hair as the hair of women, but not women. We have that word as their teeth as the teeth of lions, but they're not lions. These are demonic creatures. Their breastplates are as of iron. John, In John's day, iron was the strongest substance. And so he's, he's describing the, the strength of these demons. We not only have how they appeared to John, we also have how they sounded. And he describes it with one of the loudest noises that he would have known like chariots and many horses running to battle. Look at how they attacked. They have a repetition of what they're able to do in that sting from verse 5. They have tails like scorpions. Their stings were in their tails. They were able to hurt men for five months. We come now to their ruler in verse 11. And they had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. This angel was the same one who was given the key to that bottomless pit. This is, this is Satan. His name is given in the Hebrew and in the Greek. The translation for both names is the same. In Hebrew, Abaddon means destruction. In Greek, Apollyon means destroyer. And so he is the destroyer. The names are given both in Hebrew and Greek, both for Israel and all Gentiles. This ruler its showing by, by his name being given that he is the one who will be destroying both Jews and Gentiles. In verse 12, there's a systematic marking of the order of the judgments. One woe is past. And behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Again, this was, the first, this was the fifth trumpet, the first woe. Five months of torment because of these stings. The sixth trumpet will sound next. And in that, 200 million come and destroy a third of the earth's population. The third woe will be the seventh trumpet, where the seven bowls of wrath begin to be poured out on the earth. As you read verse 12, one woe is past. There's almost a a pause, a sign of relief. We made it through another trumpet judgment. You might even think people say, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) But there's more to come. And each judgment that's poured out on this earth is worse than before. As I stop and consider that, I'm amazed at people say, well, this already happened. This happened in 70 AD. Or we've been going through this tribulation already. There's no way this description that's given here could be anything but future. Nothing like this has ever happened. We come to the sixth trumpet, and we have an army from the east coming in verses 13 through 21. John heard a voice, verses 13 through 15. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. Which is that golden altar that's in the tabernacle? It's the altar of incense. We, we saw that last time. Saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed when they prepared for an hour, and a, or which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men." So the voice is coming from somewhere around these four horns of the golden altar of incense. That altar of incense, remember, was linked to the martyrs in chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, the prayers of those who had been martyred, the crying out, avenge our blood. And then also in chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, the altar of incense represented the prayers of God's people. And it's interesting that here is linked. This voice that comes here is the one from the golden altar, the one that represents prayers of the saints, desires of the saints. It told the sixth angel to loose the four angels bound in the Euphrates River. The Bible knowledge commentary says, these four angels are clearly demons, as holy angels are not bound. And I found that in several different commentaries, that fact that these angels were were bound shows that they cannot be God's angels. They're Satans. They're demons. The Euphrates River was the boundary of the Eastern Empires. John MacArthur says about these four angels, their precise identity is not revealed, but they may be demons that controlled the four major empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These demons were released to kill a third of the earth's population. I say demons, probably demon-possessed men. The timing of this event was precise. Did you read that? The hour, the day, the month. The year, it was all specified. If you remember back at the fourth seal, the seals of the, of the scroll that were being broken as, as the Lord unrolled that scroll, in that fourth seal, a fourth of the earth's population was destroyed in Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. That means in these two judgments, that judgment and this, over a half of the world's population is killed. The prophet Zechariah prophesied that two-thirds of all Israel will be killed during the tribulation period. One-third will survive and go into the millennial kingdom. We read that in Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. And it shall come to pass that all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. So that's a third of the nation of Israel that will survive the tribulation and go into the millennium. This war appears to be a part of the the Armageddon campaign. Most of us have thought that the battle of Armageddon is that one last final battle. But there are several battles that lead up to that. And so now biblical uh, prophecy uh, scholars are saying that there, there is a series, it's a campaign of Armageddon. Well, we come now to verses 16 through 19. And the army of men on horses numbers 200 million. The number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. And if you multiply those out, you'll come up with 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision of them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire. And by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents. And had heads and with them they do hurt. Well the horsemen are described as having breastplates of, of fire, of jacent and of brimstone. Brimstone is the, old, uh, is the biblical word that we know as sulfur today. The flames are fire, uh, the flames would uh, would be red and yellow, as as we think of flames today. Jacinth is the color of of black or blue smoke. Brimstone is that yellow rock that emits a suffocating gas. John MacArthur says, these are the very colors of hell, and they paint a terrifying picture of God's wrath poured out on the sinful world by these demons. William R. Newell combats the idea that people have said for years, hell is not real. He warns his readers, he says, To doubt that this is fire and smoke and brimstone in chapter 9 is to proceed to doubt whether the lake of fire is literal burning with brimstone. Doubt as to this has already spread through Christendom, yet it must be literal. There is no possible escape if we believe the Bible to be true at all. Remember our principle of interpretation of hermeneutics, literal whenever possible. And so we we read this, we understand it to be fire, to be smoke, to be brimstone. The heads of the horses are described as the heads of lions, Fire and smoke and brimstone came out of their mouths. The power or strength of these horses were in their mouths and in their tails. And from their mouths come out that fire, the brimstone, the sulfur. And from their tails come these stings. They're they're like serpents, venomous, powerful enough to kill. Lions and serpents are deadly enemies of man. MacArthur writes, these images describe the supernatural deadliness of this demon forces in terms that are commonly understood in the natural realm. Unlike the scorpion stings inflicted during the previous demonic assault, that is the the, the other trumpet judgment, the snake bites inflicted by this host will be fatal. Who are these? Several ideas have been proposed. Some say these 200 million are the armies from the east. Scott and Ironside say that. Walbert says that the 200 million, that number is a literal number. We would agree with him. Seiss, Newell, and Strauss say that they are demons and not men. 200 million demons. Gabeline says they are demons and human. Ott says that they are demon possessed men. Dr. Custer goes through all of those and then he comes up with this conclusion. He says, they're probably a literal army from the east of 200 million men driven or possessed by demons. Can you imagine an army like that? It amazes me as I read through these judgments to come to these last verses in this chapter And we see here the blatant rebellion of defiant and of willful unbelief. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murderers nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. These who were not killed by the plagues would not repent. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, though the sixth judgment produced fear, it did not produce repentance. Sometimes we wonder, what will it take for that person that I'm witnessing to, to turn from their sin and to accept Christ? It can only take the work of the Holy Spirit. Here we see, with all of this judgment being poured out, like what has never been seen before, with punishment on man's sin, they will not repent. They will only reinforce their stubborn rebellion and harden their hearts in further unbelief. Usually, when judgment or punishment comes, the first thing we think is, what have I done wrong? (laughs) How can I make this right with God? But not here. In these last two verses of the chapter, we see five sins for which these people would not repent. Remember the word repent is to change your mind, to change your direction, to turn from your sin to God. First of all, they wouldn't repent of worshiping the works of their own hands. They had made idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. Will men ever cease to make their own gods? <laughs> Even here, they're making idols. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 4, we know that an idol is nothing. He's talking about offering meats to idols. And he says, an idol is nothing. It's just a piece of stone. It's just a piece of wood. Isaiah told the the story to illustrate the absurdity of creating a God. He says about this person that makes it, He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a God, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself. And he saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. What a picture of what idolatry is. Burning part in the fire and yet making the other part of God, it's still the same material. And so Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing, but demons are real. And here's that phrase in Revelation 9:20: They that should not worship that they should not worship devils. So the worship of a man-made idol. Metal, wood, whatever it's made of, is this opportunity, this open door to worship demonic forces. And God made it clear that idolatry is wrong. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, it's the first and second commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. They wouldn't repent of their idolatry. Next, they wouldn't repent of their murders, the violent killing of others. As the first idolatry broke commandments one and two, this is commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. They wouldn't repent of their sorceries. This word is. Pharmacon. We get our word pharmacy from that. It's the use of drugs, of poisons, of amulets and charms, seances, witchcraft, incantations, magic spells. And in our day satanic worship holds a great control over people and keeps them from turning to Christ, from repenting. It will do so in these last days. They wouldn't repent of their fornication. Word here is pornea, immorality. Sexual sins keep people from turning to Christ. That's commandment number seven. They wouldn't repent of their thefts, commandment number eight. Robbery, stealing, and fraud. They desire to have more. And that desire takes people down a path that they will refuse to return from. They have they have to have more. They still won't repent. Again, when I think of this outpouring of God's wrath on the earth, I think, why would people continue to steal things? Why would they continue to live in idolatry? The blindness of Satan. As I think of this passage in this chapter, the conclusion that I draw from our own, the application that we have, so, we should be more engaged now than ever before in persuading men and women to turn to Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work in their lives, will cause them to desire to be saved, and be there to give them the scriptures that they need to know that simple plan of salvation. Has not God made it very clear? Repent of your sin, turn to Christ. Trust his work on the cross and be saved. Jude tells us that there are some who are one to Christ because they are shown his love. They see the love that was demonstrated as they think of Christ dying for them on Calvary. And they respond to that love. Jude says others we must warn about the coming flames of eternal and literal hell. Listen to his words. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, having even the garment, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. May we be faithful in sharing the gospel, in showing the love of Christ who died for our sins, in warning them of judgment to come, from a righteous God who will do exactly as he says he will do. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that as we focus on the things that will take place on this earth when the rapture of the church has taken place and believers are taken away, that we will realize we we deserve that same judgment as we said last week. But again, that we would have compassion on those around us while we're here. And we'd be faithful in our witness and in our walk. And I pray that even this week, you will bring someone across our path who the Holy Spirit has been speaking to. And we, we ask that we'll say the right things, that we'll be there, that we'll be bold in our witness, and that we'll see others come to Christ before it's too late. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.